Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We've been talking for some weeks about, um, at the moment, rabbinic theology, theology of the rabbis in the classical Talmudic area, what we call Chazal, our sages of blessed memory. And I'm not going to I decided, I I thought last week we'd move forward this week. I'm actually going to go back, review material from last week, and I've expanded my source sheet. So um, what we're going to do today, we were talking last week about, uh, we've started talking about the inner, I'm going to call it the inner complexity of God, as described in the sages, the inner complexity of God. And last week we talked about God's aspect of just strict justice in tension with God's aspect of compassion or mercy. Um, in Hebrew, in rabbinic Hebrew, they call it midat hadin and midat harachamim. God has an attribute of justice, which is meant to be, which means strict justice. Everyone gets what they deserve, good or bad. And midat harachamim, God's an attribute of compassion that God is forgiving even when God doesn't need to or when people deserve bad or punishment, but God decides to forgive them anyway. So what we're going to do a little bit different today in reviewing this is I've brought more biblical sources. So I, I want us to consider what materials from the Bible the sages had to work with what are they trying to do really with biblical sources? How, how are they trying to make sense of them? Um, what are the three things? What are the sources they're trying to make sense of? How do they try to make sense of them? And then the third is, which we didn't talk about last week at all, is how do these ideas filter into our Sidur? Okay, so three tasks for today. What are the material, biblical materials that the sages are contending with? How do they respond to them? And how does this filter in, into our Sidur? So for those who were looking at home, those who listen at home, not live, and got the source sheet last week, this is a different source sheet. It has different stuff on it, more stuff on it. I've expanded it. That's what we're going to talk about today. Anything that anyone wants to add today to that agenda? While we're talking about God's Midat Hadin and Midat HaRachamim, God's attribute of justice and attribute of compassion or mercy. Okay. If you want to add something to shout out, I'm going to share the screen. And here's what I'm sharing. Okay. Um, the first, so I, I've, I've expanded a little bit what, what, what we're, what the biblical materials are. The first passage we looked at last week, more topical this week, because it's from this week's Parsha, Kitisa in Exodus 34, right? The famous passage of God, what is referred to by the sages as God's attri- 13 attributes of mercy, Shloshis Re Midot, right? Hashem, Hashem El Rachum Vechanun, Erech Apaim Verav Chesed Vemet, God, merciful, patient, faithful, who holds on to kindness for a thousand generations, meaning if someone is good, their descendants are rewarded for a thousand generations. Um, but God does not forgive entirely, 
Poked Avon Avod Albanim, Albanevanim Al Shilishim Valri Beim. Right? Um who can be punished for people's sin people's sins besides them, their children, their children's children, the third generation, and the fourth generation. So God is rewarding and remembers people for the good for a thousand generations, punishes only up to four generations. Right? So uh, in this particular biblical text, God's compassion far outweighs God's severity, right? 1,000 to four, that is to say by a factor of 250, okay? But God's severity is not gone entirely. And of course, as we know, the sages, uh, literarily we would say, did violence to this passage by stopping it, when we say it on high holidays, after the word vinake, and thus making it mean exactly the opposite of what it means, right? They made it mean, God stores up or holds on to kindness for a thousand generations. God carries or forgives. Literally, this word for forgiving is carry. The idea is, you are carrying your sin around, but then God takes it and carries it for you. Carries sin, transgression, sin, and acquits. End of sentence. Okay. Um, by the way, just to, um, for those who know a little bit about trope, about Torah chanting, uh, just to drive home that the sages who took this out of the Bible, knew that they were doing violence literarily to the verse. The major pause in the verse, the etnachta, is under the word semicolon. But v'nake lo yinake, which is translated to English as yet not remitting all, Okay, here instead of the semicolon, we have the dash. All right? It's a new part of the sentence, grammatically, in biblical Hebrew. All right? And yet what the sages did is they added this word vinake to vichata'ah to make it look as if it's another parallel word, and then they just cut off the rest of the sentence about punishment. Is there any questions about that? I want to make sure people understand that. So when we get up on high holidays and sing Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum Vechanun, we're singing about God. You remember, you're merciful. You remember all good deeds for a thousand generations and you forgive and acquit. Period. As opposed to you, he surely does not acquit for four generations. Okay. So it's transformed by the sages in our Sidur, um, in their thinking to mean the second half of the thought, the punishment, to mean exactly the opposite of what it means. I just want to pause. Anyone have anything to say about that? This is, by the way, one of the most, probably one of the most, maybe the most, I don't know, breathtaking example of rabbinic exegesis of Bible where they take something out of context and they, by taking it out of context, they have it mean something other than what it means. In this case, it's breathtaking because they take it out of context by cutting off the sentence in the middle, the phrase in the middle, and they get thus get it to mean exactly the opposite of what it means. Yes, Michael. 
Unmute, please. Maybe you're being a little harsh on the rabbis. Maybe what they're doing is not making it mean the opposite, but making it a plea from the people that that God change and and not carry carry it for four generations. Okay. Uh, I don't think I was being, I didn't mean to be harsh on the rabbis. I'm sorry if it came across that way. I'm undyingly admiring of the rabbis that they had the chutzpah to do that, to say, well, that seems to be the shot, but that's, that doesn't, yes, I agree with you. That doesn't work for us theologically. So we're just going to change the meaning, not by changing any words. Notice they would not have the chutzpah to do that. It's in the Bible but simply by changing where the pause is. And then after you change where the pause is, you kind of just don't quote the rest of the sentence that you don't want to quote. Okay? Just leave it out. So it's incredible, bold, theological, theological chutzpah that that we would never allow our, ourselves to get away with. We'd say, like, you can't misquote the Bible that way. You're distorting the meaning. It apparently did not trouble them. And then we talked, and we're not going to look too much at this passage, about similar passage from Micha, that God says, no se avon ve'over al pesha, you are forgiving. Yashuv yirachamenu yichbosh avonotenu. God turns back and has compassion on us and quashes our sins. And this is an aspect of faithfulness with Jacob and Abraham, meaning the people of Jacob and the people of Abraham. It doesn't mean those two individuals. The way you promised us long ago, as if this was the promise in um, in the Bible, as if what Micha is saying is the promise of the Bible is what Kitisa actually said, right? Micha is sort of already reading it rabbinically. Okay, Ezekiel. So Ezekiel Yechezkel, the prophet Yechezkel, about the year 600, a little bit afterwards, a little bit before the destruction of the temple, or around the time of the destruction of the temple, prophesying in Babylon, um, has a new, it, it seems to be a new doctrine of tshuva or repentance. There's a whole chapter devoted to it, where he says the same thing over and over again several times. Okay. Ezekiel says, Ben lo A child will not be punished for the sin of the parent. While he's on the subject, he says, lo And a parent will not be punished for the sin of a child, meaning guilt is not transmitted within the family. The righteous has his righteousness. The wicked has his wickedness. Next verse, if a wicked person does teshuva, ki yashuv, same word as teshuva, mikol chatatav and he does good, then chayo lo yamut, that person will surely live and not die. All right? And then, he, I, I skipped it, he has another line which says, similarly, if a righteous person starts sinning, then he'll be punished for his sin, his Righteousness will not stand him in good stead anymore. That part is less important to us. The most important to us is two things. One, um, Ezekiel seems to be saying here a clear contradiction to the passage in Exodus in saying that uh, two things. One, 
good is not rewarded beyond that generation. And two, I think more importantly, sin is not punished beyond that generation, right? Each person is rewarded or punished based on their own deeds. It's all individual. So we have here in Exodus and Shemot, this idea of um, reward lasts for a thousand generations, punishment lasts for four generations. Ezekiel is saying, no, 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 it doesn't work that way, right? Again, I want to emphasize the punishment doesn't last beyond the individual because of his conclusion, right? Because God wants people to do tshuva, and God says, ha, 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 sorry, hechafotz, achpotz, mot rasha, do I want the death of the wicked? Says God, surely not. I much prefer tshuva. Okay. Now, what is not in Ezekiel is yet the idea of God forgives you even if you don't deserve it. Okay. Ezekiel hasn't made that change yet. Right. His idea is God does not carry sin down to a next generation. Everyone with me? And God wants everyone to do tshuva. So there is still a doctrine of, let's call it justice, right? If you don't do tshuva, you will be punished. Okay. So there is a doctrine of justice. It's not about mercy. It's not God forgives willy nilly. We will get to that. Okay. But it's a change from the doctrine of Exodus in that children are no longer punished to the fourth generation. Everyone follow that? Any questions about that? I want to make sure you follow that. So it's a development. It's an evolution or a change in the idea of sin and punishment within the Bible. And we see Yechezkel's exact idea playing out in the book of Jonah. God says to Jonah, go tell the people of Ninveh, I'm going to punish them because they're bad. Jonah runs away, doesn't want to. Then after being tormented by being in the belly of the fish for three days, God says to Jonah again, all right, now go. And Jonah goes and they repent and they're forgiven. And Jonah is angry, right? The beginning of chapter four, this God, this is what I knew all along. That's why I ran away. I have bolded the words in Jonah chapter four, verse two. Because I've known all along about you that you are a compassionate God, patient, full of mercy, right? As if Ezekiel is quoting Exodus or the prophet Micah, the exact words. And then Jonah adds, V'nicham al God who wants to renounce punishment. I know that you want to forgive. I knew that you would do this. By the way, we're not going to get into why is Jonah angry and Jonah's character. We don't have time to do that today. That's, you know, that's for the Yom Kippur afternoon. Okay. But Jonah is saying when they did Shuva, if they were going to do Shuva, I knew you would forgive them. And that's why I didn't want to be the prophet to do this. There's some implication here that Jonah 
you know, either doesn't want them to be forgiven or doesn't want to be in the position of giving a prophecy that then doesn't come true. He says you're going to be punished, then you are going to be punished. So leaving aside Jonah's character and motivation, Jonah is saying, I knew this about you. I knew that you are El Rachum Vechanun and Erech I should have bolded those words in Exodus also. I don't know why I didn't. Okay. I knew that you're compassionate and that you could forgive sin like in Micha and that you will forgive sin. You do forgive sin if people do repentance. So it's as if Jonah knew, maybe he did, knew all of these three passages, all of these three ideas, okay, that you're compassionate, that you are forgiving, and that you want to forgive someone immediately and not punish them, punish them if they do repentance. And that pisses Jonah off. He doesn't like that. Again, we're not going to get into why he doesn't like that, but I just want to point out Jonah's idea here. It's kind of the culmination of all of these biblical ideas. Okay, pause. Diane Lowry has a hand up. I'm a little confused, Avi. <clears throat> yep. I thought you were talking about the issue of <clears throat> excuse me, intergenerational responsibility. Inter, the, sorry, sorry, did you say inter or inter? Yes. Inter, inter. Yes. inter with a T, yep. And then you go to Jonah, which doesn't address that issue, at least not explicitly. Well, Ezekiel got rid of the inter. We talked about the uh, the Ezekiel passage, right? Ezekiel got rid of the inter. He said, nope, there's a change. I don't know if you, you might have been transitioning computers at that moment and not <clears throat> for the Ezekiel passage, right? Ezekiel says, nope, no more. Wrong doctrine. Everyone lives and dies by their own sin, their own righteousness. That's it. No more inter. Ezekiel has swept aside intergenerational. Gotcha. Okay. Ezekiel has swept aside Exodus. So you could say this passage in Jonah, the prophet Jonah seems to be the heir of all of these ideas. You are merciful and want to forgive in Exodus and Micha. There is no more intergenerational bearing of sin in Exodus, in Ezekiel. Um, and I know that you want to forgive people when they do tshuva. Understood. I knew this so, about you. Yeah. All right. Let me just ask them one other question. Yes. Is in the Jonah story in particular, the entire, all of Nineveh is being nope. held responsible. Nope. We're not going to talk about, we're not going to talk about the Jonah story entirely. We're just going to talk about this piece of theology. If we get into the Jonah story entirely, we'll never, we'll never get out of it. Go ahead. I'll ask you. Sorry. I cut you off. Ask your question. And then I might say, I don't want to deal with that today. Please ask. Community responsibility as opposed to individual responsibility. Okay. Good point. Um, Although it does say they all repented. That's what Jonah says. The king, from the king on down, everyone repented. That's all well, I'll say about it. We don't know that they all sinned. We don't know that they all sinned. Correct. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to leave that here because we could talk about Jonah endlessly. Well, let's do uh, that. On, uh, let's do that on Yom Kippur afternoon. Diane, then Michael. Okay. So. So presumably this um, evolution of thought that's actually contained in the Tanakh yes. is what allowed the rabbis when they well, were... We're going to we're gonna get to that. Let's wait. Hold off. We're going to okay. get to the rabbis, right? We said job number two is going to be how the rabbis make sense of this, how they utilize this biblical material. 
So okay. we're, we're still on job number one today, which is looking at the sources. Hold on. Okay, Michael. May I try to harmonize these two strains? If you feel the need to, sure. Okay. Uh, that that the punishment lasting for four generations is not can be interpreted not inconsistently with only the individual being punished, but if you consider that it means that the effect of the punishment on one individual has has effect not a punishment but an effect on for several generations afterwards the family lore how how the how bad the person was two generations before okay great grandfather good good okay. uh, i'm going to call midrash on you that's okay uh that's a okay you're you're trying to say i'm trying to square these things together and not have them be in conflict because of course evolutionary means it changes the idea changed this idea is not the same as that idea um, and you're harmonizing, and that's a-okay. Thank you. I appreciate that comment. Okay. Now, a little snippet from Psalms, which is not about theology. We're not, I have two passages from the Bible which have nothing to do with theology. They have to do with furniture. Okay. Um, we have one of the Shir Hamalots, the 15 Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 120 to 134. Okay. And it says, when we go up to Jerusalem, to the house of David, we will rejoice. Kishama yashvu kisot lemishpat, kisot lebeit David. Because there in Jerusalem is where the thrones of judgment sat. That's it. We don't know what that means. It seems to imply that when the kings of the house of David judged, they sat on a throne. Does that mean their regular throne? Does that mean they had a special judgment throne? Why is it in the plural, right? I guess it could be in the plural because each king had their own throne and it wasn't the same throne. Don't know. what we're just, We just have mention of sitting on the throne of judgment, okay? Then we have another mention of thrones, and this is in Aramaic in the book of Daniel, very late book of the Bible. It's a vision that Daniel has. Um, and if anyone knows William Blake's uh, watercolors, this is familiar to you. As I looked on, Daniel is saying, I saw this vision. Okay. Thrones were set in place. Kursivan Ramiu. Kursa is Aramaic for seat. Va'atik Yomin Yativ. And the Ancient of Days sat down. By the way, this is familiar to you. Um, not only from William Blake, even if you don't know his watercolors, but because from your Hebrew school image of the high holidays, his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was white and fleecy. This is our, this is where we get our image of God sitting on a throne of judgment and what we, some of us, um, in our Hebrew school, young Hebrew school imagination, imagine God looks like on the throne of judgment. What does God look like on the throne of judgment? Like an old man with white hair and a white beard. That image comes from the book of Daniel. And here the deity is referred to as Atik Yomin, the ancient of days. Okay. So I brought this passage and he has a vision. Oh, and sorry. And, and books. Uh, I just added this because of high holidays. Um, the court sat and books were opened. 
Okay. This is again, ground zero of our image of the Midrashic image of what happens on the high holidays. It all comes from the book of Daniel. All right. So I brought this again, because I just want to show there's a second passage about there's when God judges, there's sitting on a throne. There's something about sitting on a throne. The reason I brought these two passages is I think this idea of which we saw last week, which we're going to see again very quickly. We're going to look at the rabbinic materials, right? So I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm just going to, I didn't add rabbinic materials. I'm just going to go over very quickly what we did last week. Okay. Uh, first passage from Talmud Brachot. What is God's prayer? God's prayer is, I hope that my attribute of mercy will quash my attribute of justice so that I can deal um, compassionately with my children. Okay. Then we had the passage from Midrash Breshit Rabbah about truth and mercy are arguing with each other before the world is created to say, sorry, before humans are created to say, should you create humans or not? Um, and in this context, truth seems to mean something like fairness or justice, which seems to be in conflict with mercy. Okay. And God throws truth out in order to be able to create humanity. This is just the same passages as last week. So if you didn't hear last week's class, you could go back and look at, listen to last week's class and you'll, you'll hear us read these passages, but it's the same ones on the sheet. And then the third one, God's mighty hand. What is God's might? Hachazakah. That your Rachamim, God enables you to conquer or quash your Midat Hadin. So here we have um, the word midah or attribute, okay? We had before midah in the first passage, midah harachamim, okay? And then we have here midah hadin. I'm just showing with my cursor these words, which are bolded. And then the final passage, what God does 12 hours a day, from 9 to 12, the second three hours, God gets up. Right. God is judging once he sees how bad we are. God omade miki se hadin v'yoshev al se harachamin. Right. So I think, I think the rabbis created this image out of the passages in Psalms and, um, Daniel. I stand, I'm open to being corrected. Um, I could be wrong, but I think the rabbis in their fantasy, um, their imagination, made it there's two thrones there's the judgment throne and the mercy throne okay i don't think there's any basis by the way to this metaphor in realia i don't i don't know that ancient kings actually had a justice throne and a mercy throne and that they would get up from one to the other again i stand to be corrected but as far as i know greco-roman or persian kings did not have this i think the rabbis created this image and the, how do they create this image, right? This is what Diane was getting to. They're trying to harmonize all these biblical passages about there's justice, there's mercy, God can change God's mind if you do tshuva. And then there's an image of God sits on a judgment throne and they're putting this all together and they're saying, okay, under certain circumstances, God can choose to get up from the judgment throne and sit on the mercy throne, which means God is now going to do mercy. 
And then we had the final passage about Rosh Hashanah, right? In Midrash Vayikra Rabbah. When does this happen? When God hears the shofar, right? When God hears the shofar blast, God, Yosheva Ole Al Kisei Hadin, he starts out doing justice. But then when they blow the shofar and God hears it, Omeid Mikisei Hadin, Yoshev Bikisei Harachamim, Vehofech Alehem Midat Hadin Larachamim. In this passage, by the way, it's quite striking. I want to point out there's no need for tshuva. By the way, both of these passages, which says God gets up from one throne and sits on the other throne, there's no tshuva in this story. It doesn't say, and then they do tshuva, so God gets up from the justice throne and sits on the mercy throne. It's rather, in the first passage from Talmud Avodah God sees that everyone, the world deserves to be destroyed, and God voluntarily chooses to be compassionate. Second passage is, God hears the shofar, which maybe implies that the people are gathered together and doing tshuva, but doesn't explicitly say God sees their tshuva, okay? Rather, just God hears the shofar, and that is sufficient for God to metaphorically get up and change chairs, okay, and go from justice to mercy. So the sages, Chazal, are the heirs of the, all of these biblical passages. They're trying to, I, I don't exactly want to say harmonize, although maybe they're trying to harmonize. They're trying to have it make sense in a unified system. And in their unified system, they seem to be saying, um, God can be strict or compassionate. God prefers to be compassionate, and perhaps even God chooses to be compassionate, even though people might not deserve it. Again, these last two passages, there's nothing really other than blowing the shofar about human responsibility. There's nothing about, I took account of my actions. You know, the Ezekiel part is absent. And the Jonah part is absent. I took account of my actions. I did shuva. And so God was moved to change how God responds. You might want to say that that's implied. You might say, of course, God would not get up from the throne of judgment and sit on the throne of mercy unless a person did shuva. I just want to point out, it doesn't say that. Okay. So we have here, um, again, uh, one of the passages quotes Isaiah, and I didn't bring Isaiah in my biblical passages. Maybe I should have. Here it is. I'm, I'm showing it to you now with my cursor. Passage from Isaiah. I wipe away your sin like a cloud. Okay. In, in the, the, this passage is from Sifre Bamidbar Midrash. In the Midrash, Midrashic passage, it says, you do tshuva and I receive it, quoting Isaiah, I can wipe away your sin like a cloud. But in these last two passages, there's no explicit tshuva. It's God can simply choose to be compassionate. Before we get to Diane, if you want a question, comment, where does this filter into our daily davening? I want to make sure we close the loop here. Where do ideas about about 
God's forgiveness or compassion filter into our daily davening? There are two major places. Anyone want to wave me down? One of them is one of the blessings in the Amida, the sixth blessing, Slach lanu avinu ki chatanu. Some of us hit our breast, our heart. Mechalal malkeinu ki fashanu. Forgive us, God, for we have sinned. Forgive us, God, for we have sinned. It's blessing number six, the third blessing after the Kedusha. Because you are forgiving. Baruch Hashem Hanun. Blessed are you, Hashem, full of compassion, forgiving abundantly. Now, this blessing is after the blessing where we talk about tshuva. God wants tshuva. Okay. And then we have a blessing. So blessing number five is God. Thank you for helping us do tshuva. Blessing number six is God. We know you are forgiving. Okay. And the other locus in our daily sewer where we have this idea is in Tachnun. Okay. Tachnun is all about I am confessing and I'm throwing myself on your mercy. Okay. God who accepts God. What's the word? What's the phrase? Sorry. Right. God who is appeased compassionately and reconciled by pleadings. Uh, would you please be appeased and reconciled to this pathetic generation, which means us? Ki ein ozer. There's no one to help us. No one else to help us. Avinu malkenu, choneinu vaanenu. Right, our 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 parent, our sovereign, have mercy on us and respond to us, answer us. Ki ein banu maasim. So, are we saying, Avinu Malkenu, do this for us because we deserve it? No. Are we saying, Avinu Malkenu, do this for us because I did shuva? No. Right. It's Avinu Malkenu, do this for us. I got nothing. Ein banu maasim means I got nothing. We have no deeds. I'm just, we're just asking you for mercy, not because of our deeds. Okay. If you judge us on our deeds, it would be a grim outcome. That's what's implied. We don't have deeds. We don't have, we don't have credit in the bank to ask you this. But I say, Imanu, staka vachesed vahoshienu. Just, we're just asking for mercy. Okay. So really, these two loci in the Sidur, I think, the blessing of Slachlanu Avinu Kichatanu, the sixth blessing of the Amidah, and this part of the Tachanun, I think they are heirs to the final passages of, of that we have that I brought you in our study sheet today, which is, God, we just need mercy. We know that you can choose to be merciful. Even if we deserve judgment, we're asking you for mercy. I'm asking the court for mercy. Okay. I think our passages in the Sidur are heirs to this final version. They don't say, and if I do tshuva, I know you will be forgiving. 
but if I don't, I know you will be severe with me. They're saying God is compassionate and we're asking for your compassion. So they're really going, I just want to point out, I think maybe you can argue with me a step further than Jonah. Jonah said, okay, I know that you want to forgive. The implication is when people do tshuva, we're saying in our siddur, we think you want to forgive. We think you have an essentially forgiving nature and we appeal to that forgiving nature. Okay, now I'm going to pause. I'm going to stop sharing. I'm going to stop screen sharing. Thoughts? Diane, did I anticipate what you wanted to say? Do you want to add anything about how, how you, how you think the sages well, if, gather if they, in, gather in all the biblical elements. I mean, if they needed, I'm thinking they had the theology in mind that they wanted and they were able to use all of these passages and thinking about it as justification for what they actually wanted to say. Yeah. Uh, there's always two ways of looking at it. One is right. The rabbi knows what sermon the rabbi wants to give. And then the rabbi looks at the parsha to find it. Um, if I, sorry, I didn't mean to caricature what you're saying, uh, uh, dumb it down, right? You said it in a more elevated way. And the other way <laughs> is saying, well, look, we're just going to look at the evidence. We're going to see what's really there. Um, um, but it's clear the rabbis, I agree with you, wanted to emphasize a doctrine of God's compassion and forgiveness. Right. Yeah. God is mitratse berachamim. You are reconciled with compassion. You get, you get reconciled with us. It could have said, Mitratse bitchuva. You're reconciled with us because of our chuva. And it doesn't. It's, you're reconciled with us because of Rachamin, because of your compassion. It's because of God. They're making a statement about God's nature, right? So we have ideas that God is internally complex. God has an aspect that could be judging more severely. God has an aspect which is compassionate and forgiving. We have various potential raw materials in the Bible, various potential raw materials about how this works. Okay. And it seems to be that the message that the sages want to give us, that the sages extrapolate from these biblical materials and then that we inherit in the daily siddur it seems to be that the message is god we know that your essential nature is forgiving and compassionate in the midrash described very picturesquely as god gets up from one throne and goes and sits on another throne and i brought you those last two biblical passages because i think that's the origin of the idea of God is sitting on a throne when God judges. So if we have, I guess the sages were thinking of, well, if God has a judgment throne, then when God decides to be merciful, there must be some other throne, not the kisei la mishpat. There's got to be another kisei. And I guess that's how they came up with that idea. I don't really know. Diane, is there a hand again? Comment? Yeah. yeah. yeah so please. I was just thinking about this. Um, they're not that long after the destruction of the temple. Correct. This is all happening after the destruction. And it's actually remarkable that in the face of 
uh, what was catastrophic for the pre-existing religion, that they were able to look at God's mercy and not God's judgment. Correct. And say, God, we know that you are, that you are, by the way, it's a little bit after the destruction, meaning, okay, when are these Midrashim? Yeah, three, four hundred years-ish. Okay, that that's not the wink of an To us, it's the wink of an eye. It's not totally the wink of an eye. But yes, somehow after that, they're able to say, but we know that you are full of compassion. It's a, it right. is a, it's an, it's an audacious, an audacious theological statement. So I want to point out what they did with Hashem. By the way, and of course, the third place it filters into Sidur is not the daily Sidur, but Hashem Hashem El Rachum Vechanun. By the way, Sephardim say Hashem Hashem El Rachum Vechanun, uh, every Monday and Thursday. Just so you know. Actually, they might say it every day. I'm not sure about it's in their Sephardic Tachnun. Okay. But certainly every Monday or Thursday, maybe every day. I'm not sure about the outlines of Sephardic Tachnun. We don't have it in our Ashkenazi Tachnun, but they say Hashem Hashem El Rachum Vechanun more frequently than we do. Right. It's so it's part of their regular weekday Sidur. God, your nature is compassionate. So they then the, the final end product liturgically is they went back. They circled back to step one in Exodus and they, I'll be polite, recrafted it so that Michael does not think I'm criticizing by saying doing literary violence. They went back to the passage in Exodus and this week's Parsha, and they curated it. I believe that is the word of today. Everything is curated. They curated that passage in such a way that it meant not what it apparently means in the pshat, in the simple manifest meaning in context in Exodus, but rather they curated it in a way so that it meant what their doctrine of God's compassion was, right? So they were, we've looped back in liturgy. We're looping back to the beginning, to Exodus, to the beginning of this discussion, um, to what is probably, again, if we talked in evolutionary terms, probably the earliest of the biblical ideas, okay? Um, and they've curated the verse in such a way that it reads to us differently. So that's my thought for you to think about when you listen to the Parsha of Kitisa. Um, it is 8.59 a.m. Western time. I'm going to sign off. We will move on next week. We're not going to review this again next week. I'm not going to expand. So I am going to post a new study sheet today if people want to look at those passages. Uh, I think I'll, I'll add that Isaiah passage about wiping away like a cloud. Um, and we will move on next week. We're going to talk some more still about God's other ways of looking at God's internal complexity. But now we looked at God's aspect as, um, judge who gives people their just desserts in tension with the idea of God as compassionate and forgiving who wants to forgive no matter what. Okay. Have a good day. Stay healthy. Be Torah. Thank you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, 
go to tbala.org.